HIV AIDS has reached an existential moment. As COVID-19 continues to pose geopolitical risks, there is a threat that the progress made over the past 40 years in the fight to end the AIDS pandemic will be undone. COVID-19 has exacerbated social and economic inequalities, placed further stress on weak health systems, and highlighted the urgent need to strengthen global health security. In managing these dual pandemics, the global health community must adapt, protect, and integrate approaches to sustain momentum toward ending HIV-AIDS while continuing to respond to COVID-19. In this podcast, we speak to experts, community leaders, and people living with HIV about the progress toward reaching the new targets outlined in the 2021 Political Declaration on HIV and AIDS, the current geopolitical climate, why it is important to continue prioritizing HIV-AIDS, and what can be done to strengthen health security in low- and middle-income countries. This is AIDS Existential Moment. I'm Jeff Sturchio, Senior Associate at the Global Health Policy Center of CSIS. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Solange Baptiste, Executive Director of the International Treatment Preparedness Coalition. This is one of a series of podcasts conducted at the International AIDS Conference in Montreal, in which we explored what needs to be done to end the AIDS pandemic, both globally and domestically. Solange Baptiste assumed her current role as Executive Director of the International Treatment Preparedness Coalition in 2016. She leads community activists and allies across the globe to deliver ITPC's mission to enable people in need to gain access to optimal and affordable HIV treatment through treatment education, demand creation, community-based monitoring, and interventions to make medicines more affordable. Solange has over 15 years of global program management and advocacy experience and specializes in monitoring and evaluation. She has a depth of knowledge in social epidemiology, health financing, and community system strengthening in the developing world through her work on USAID PEPFAR health and development, bilateral, and multi-country projects across Africa and Asia. She earned a Bachelor of Science in Biology from Tuskegee University and her Master of Science in Population and International Health from the Harvard School of Public Health. Solange is committed to ensuring that the voice of affected communities contributes to and influences the decisions and policies that affect their lives. Well, it's really a pleasure to sit down with Solange Baptiste here in Montreal, Canada at the International AIDS Conference and to have a chance to get some of your perspectives on where we are now in the state of the HIV response around the world. Why don't we start with a general question about what you see as the most important recent breakthroughs in HIV AIDS treatment and prevention? Uh, Thanks, Jeff, for having me. I think the most exciting news that we had this week is related to our long-acting technologies around prevention and then those that are in the pipeline for treatment, hopefully coming out in the the coming years. Very exciting because there's a lot of issues with those of us who have adherence barriers or adherence challenges and being able to have a long-acting injection is very, very exciting. The issues, however, are related to price. And I want to make a clear distinction between price and cost, and obviously the issues around patents and the generics coming into the market and the ability to have better competition and therefore better affordability, especially for middle-income countries. So it's sort of a bittersweet situation. I mean, I think you may have seen that there was a big protest at the opening plenary, many things there, but one was, you know, this big celebration around Viv, which, exact, which not exactly open access for all. 
Mm-hmm. So while we are very excited about the new prospects and the access that are for lower income countries, we always see that the inequities continue to be propelled in the middle income countries. So bittersweet. Yeah. How did you react to the announcement recently uh, from the medicines patent pool that they had reached an agreement with uh, Vive for access to cabotegravir in, you know, in their licensing program? So that's exactly what I'm referring to. So mm-hmm. the cabotegravir, so the long-acting cabotegravir, mm-hmm. and the access issues are around the prevention of the generics coming in the middle-income countries. Mm-hmm. So the license actually is not for all. Mm-hmm. And so therefore we have countries like China, Russia, Argentina, Brazil, the middle-income countries, which are predominantly in Latin America, you still find that communities of people living with HIV or communities of people who need access to whatever that is, middle-income countries will suffer because they don't benefit from those pricing mm. deals or from the uh, licenses that are negotiated. And when you put that together with the information that UNAIDS released on the new Global AIDS Report, Latin America is one of the regions where things are moving in the wrong direction in some, in some countries. Yes, absolutely. So that just means, you know, uh, HIV infections are increasing, not decreasing. So you want to have even better access to preventive technologies. Yes. And something's wrong with the system, right? So the system does not allow for this kind of access for all. It's it's usually these sort of half wins. So you're excited about one thing, but you've left others out. And how mm-hmm. do you balance the messaging that we're happy with what we have and we're grateful for what's going on, but you still have other work to do? And it really will take a full-on response all partners at the table mm-hmm. to be able to, to change that. Let's step back from that for a moment and let me ask you a general question about how we can change that situation. Let me digress for a moment and, and uh, you know, just offer some information about my own background in this area. You know, I was working at Merck Sharp and Dome, Merck and Company, um, at the time that Prixivan or Indinavir and Stockrin or Favarins were, were brought to, to market back in the 1990s. And so I was actually very much engaged in these issues around the first big debate around access for all, you know, around 2000 and the Durban International AIDS Congress. And we don't have to go into all of that. But, but the point or the question I was going to ask you is, in the past 20 years, there's been a lot of progress on, on those issues. You know, then in Africa, there were maybe 50,000 people who had access to antiretrovirals. You know, in 2021, uh, UNAIDS uh, just reported that there are something like 20 million people in Africa who have access. Uh, and there's still a gap of about 5 million in Africa. But, you know, that's tremendous progress. But as you said, we still can't say that we've left no, no one behind. So. Why is it that we haven't been able as a global community to learn better from what's worked in the past and then really build on that so that the people who don't yet have access have the possibility of getting access to these treatments? What else do we need to do? I, I don't think that there are any incentives to do better. I think, you know, this whole thing of let's learn from what just happened presumes that people are actually looking for a lesson to fix something. And they, that means you assume that things were bad and, oh, we've now learned this lesson and we're going to improve. I don't think everyone and every stakeholder from their perspective sees it like that. There are some stakeholders that have made immense profit mm-hmm. and there are some countries that have really no problems in terms of access to vaccines, if you think about COVID. And so the lesson that was learned that we do better in the future is not necessarily a lens that everyone holds. So I think that's our first problem. 
we need to change the IP system. I think the intellectual property, the patents are not designed for people. It is designed for profit and incentivizing pharmaceutical companies to be able to make business profit. And I don't think that there's a problem with making profit. I think that there needs to be a level of investment. The issue is more around the the gorging, the pricing that is so high that the excessive uh, profit making, where now you're at the expense of lives. And that's the problem. And I think we were not able to translate those lessons in terms of speed, in terms of you know, we have to be thinking of people as volumes, like markets and securing and mm-hmm. guaranteeing volumes. And, you know, then we, we have this work from communities to generate demand and show that we need it so that we can hopefully make a case that there's volume and there's demand and then we can get the price down. And we had this conversation yesterday during the leave session where the panel had, you know, there was a, a protest in the mm-hmm. <laughs> in that discussion around long acting. And, you know, the, it really stared the conversation at the panel differently once that protest happened. So Anton Pozniak was able to now ask the panel members, so what are we learning? Why can't, why haven't we made any progress? And, mm-hmm. you know, why is it going to take five years for generics to come to market and be able to lower the price because of competition. Like, why is it five years? Who, where's this number? Five mm-hmm. years, how many people are going to die or not have access mm-hmm. to it? So there's a lot of lessons to be learned. Um, it's just whether we're willing to learn the lesson. I don't think there are incentives in the system to actually shift things. So if you were in control of this system, what incentives would you put in place to change the way that things are done? Yeah, so I think this goes to like some of the discussions we're having now under the pandemic preparedness and a fifth financial, financial intermediary fund. Intermediary fund, thank you, with the World Bank. And we, you know, there's a whole movement of us trying to, in, in terms of a network, look at global public investment mm-hmm. and really just kind of taking away all of the old stuff and saying, if we had to build this again, how would we build it? Yeah. Right? And it's where everyone contributes, everyone decides, and everyone benefits. Mm-hmm. And if we could come to a place where it's not hat in hand, lower income country, hoping to get something because we've put, you know, a little bit less because this is all we could afford and therefore we get less. It's all contributing um, to their ability. And so when you have this race to be the founding donor and you now have more power, more influence, therefore you get more access for your citizens and you set up a competition that is mm-hmm. unhealthy based on greed and self-interest. And so we need to really shape that differently. And it starts from the core principles. And it's hard, you know, like you ever tried to rewrite somebody's, um, like they give you a, a, an article and you're like, you have to rewrite it or mm-hmm. fix it. So now you're trying to fix somebody else's words. Sometimes it's actually easier to just make your own. Yeah, sure. So some things we need to kind of let them die a natural death because it's not working for the global need now. And then some things we need to start infusing these principles. And I think the fifth is a very good example of, you know, there have been articles about, you know, fix it or forget it with Asia and Emily Bass and uh, Asia Russell and Emily Bass. And I think that's exactly what we need to, in principle, be doing. We need to either realize that the system is not working. And I say that with a pinch of salt because I always come back to that the system works for those who have designed it. Well, and one of the, one of the arguments they make in Fix It or Forget It is that the governance of the FIF has to include communities. Yes. Right. It can't just be donor governments who Correct. get together. And, uh, so when I say all it. decide, I, yeah. I mean, there's a problem when your country or your government, you know, the Global Fund makes a distinction, right? They say they're country-led. So sometimes the government is not, and the country not synonymous. But those also are not proxies always for the people. 
Mm-hmm. You have many countries where the government does not really represent what the people want. Sure. I can give examples now, but that might be too politically sticky. But yes, we all know of those examples. And so I think that article does make that exact point, which is if you do not have civil society or, and communities, right? Because civil society is also a fuzzy term. We mean mm-hmm. affected communities, whether it be climate or health or whatever the issue is in terms of a public good, being able to not just have a seat at the table, but a vote. And that's where you're now taking away people's power. So I'm a rich country. I should have more say than you. And who are you at civil society to come in and vote against me? Like, I am the power broker here. So when you come up against power, that's a whole different conversation. This is not a biomedical intervention anymore. We're Mm -hmm. not talking anymore about molecules and diagnostics. We're talking about power, which brings us into the world of politics, which is why we have communities protesting, because clearly we need to speak up Mm -hmm. louder. Uh, well, in, again, almost 20 years ago, when Peter Piot led UNAIDS, you know, he's often observed that when he realized that it was important to put AIDS on the political agenda is when the resources available went from millions to billions. So I think what you're saying in a way is that it's time to reassess how we can get HIV back on the political agenda in an, in an effective way. So do you think that the problem is that people have become complacent. Uh, well, let me be clear, not which people. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what you would want to ask. So that those who are in positions where they can set policy have become complacent. That it's, you know, we have COVID-19, we have the Ukraine uh, situation in Europe and the food insecurity and economic insecurity that's flowed from that. So there are other crises and we have to address those, not HIV. But of course, HIV isn't over. And so the question then becomes, how can we reassert the priority of, of HIV AIDS in, in this you know, complex network of other challenges that people see? Yeah, it's not a simple situation, right? I think the complex number of competing priorities for, from a government perspective is very difficult to handle. You have to make an investment case. You have to have evidence why I'm going to take money out of this for that and it's sort of at the expense of something else and are you willing to let that thing go in order to get this thing better so it's again back to this this question of redesigning reimagining because what we have is not working it's piss poor mm-hmm. we need to do better so i don't think that hiv is necessarily forgotten i think it's that it's there are so many competing priorities mm-hmm. and now governments we need to help governments figure out how to have a sort of non-disease specific and you know, coming from somebody who is working at HIV, I say that with very with caution because we don't want HIV to diminish. But I think what COVID has shown us is the importance of being prepared for pandemics, epidemics, for mm. having a better, more resilient health system globally. And so being able to have a response mechanism in place that can respond to whatever comes next, right? We have COVID-19, now we have monkeypox, what, we don't know what's coming in the future. Mm-hmm. And so how to make the health system more resilient is the big question. So I don't think it's that HIV is disappearing necessarily. We need to see HIV as the entry point, and there's so many lessons, so many, so much architecture built on the back of the HIV response that that can be the entry point for NCDs, for other diseases. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the, the civil society response, the the role of of that community-led um, response in HIV is unparalleled. Like we still see how TB is struggling to figure out how to get a mm-hmm. you know a more 
potent voice out there and it, it's struggling. So if we band it together instead of necessarily being siloed, there's a new term I learned about diagonalization mm-hmm. as opposed to vertical or horizontal programs. And it's important to kind of think of sometimes, sometimes it's important to be vertical, sometimes mm-hmm. it's important to be horizontal, and sometimes you need to kind of have an angle for what's one. And I think it's this whole sort of global community that needs to come together. But if we're stuck in greed and self-interest and hoarding and back deals, we're not going to get there. And we need to call that out because it happens and no one says anything about it, but we just say, well, that's just how it is. We've learned to accept a really low standard. The bar is super low. Mm-hmm. Let's turn for a minute to look at, at Southern Africa, where you spend a lot of your time. And, you know, how does this look from the perspective of different SADC countries, for instance? Do you think that, are you optimistic that these kinds of changes you've been talking about can be implemented in, in the SADC region? Uh, because it's still... Again, going back to what uh, UNAIDS just reported in the, the recent Global AIDS report, in Southern Africa, um, there, have still, there has still been progress on uh, both decreasing the number of new infections and decreasing the number of, of AIDS deaths. Uh, even though progress has slowed, unlike other parts of the world, things are still moving in the right direction. Is that an artifact, or do you think that that actually demonstrates that there is progress happening in, in Southern Africa? I think progress is happening, but the progress itself has slowed. Mm-hmm. But you also cannot look at the progress in aggregate. I think if you look at the progress in certain populations, that things have actually gone in reverse. Mm-hmm. So if you look at criminalized populations, for sure, we have many, many issues. And I think we need to, again, unmask and call out these things. Mm-hmm. These things need to be more visible. Um, I think in the broader sense, whether, you know, how do the SADC countries, I mean, I can't speak on behalf of all SADC countries, this is my opinion. Um, I, and I've been in several conversations with um, people who know the development world and just thinking about their, their, their perspective on the fifth, their perspective on, you know, any intermediary fund that's being built for pandemic preparedness or anything in that direction. And most SADC countries, from what I heard, you know, you roll your eyes. It's, it's, it's going to be more of the same. We're going, we're, I don't think they take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Like, is it genuinely going to be that I, as a country, will be able to access as much as you? And we've seen lesson after lesson, time after time, that has not been changed. So the broader uh, lesson for me is that not the change agents in this whole story, I don't think are the governments. Mm-hmm. I think it's the people. And we need to invest in the people. The people to be able to hold the governments to account or to get the to vote out another government and take on a government that actually speaks to their needs. Because if the government is, you know, it's politics, you, you need to be able to speak to your base mm-hmm. and the base wants this and therefore you'll get reelected and therefore you're now going to be able to push for whatever the agenda is. I think it's an interesting dynamic. So tell me how um, ITPC, your organization, is able to mobilize the people to start to make these changes? What are the, you know, some of the key things that you're working on to change this system? Yeah, so we have the belief that everything starts with education and not just awareness, a depth of understanding. So whether it be about viral load or whether it's CD4 or if it's about global public investment or, you know, some other kind of a theory that is being used in your space, you need to understand that. You need to understand the standards. You need to understand the normative guidance. You need to understand, you know, the side effects of your medicine. And 
when you start to understand that, then you start to question, so why is the country or the person next to me not getting the same? Why are you paying more? Or why are you breaking your pill in half? Why are you hiding your pills? Like, what's going on? Like, you now understand a wider world. And as, as one of our strong activists in, in South, South Asia and in India, Loon Gante, says, you know, when you know, then you can get angry. It's not that we were just angry people. <laughs> it's about harnessing that anger now into how can you change it? So we really think that that is the pathway. So, and it's, you can see our model and an approach most clearly in our community-led monitoring model, which starts with um, education and moves into evidence. So show me now that this is not a one-off situation, that you didn't just get a stock out in one place, but this is actually a trend or this mm -hmm. is an actual quality issue with the service being provided or stigma or whatever it may be. And then advocacy and engagement, being able to shout and protest and lay down in the street if you need to, but also be in the boardroom and be in the negotiating space to be able to come with a solution as communities and co-problem solve. I think for too long, there's been this sort of antagonistic mm -hmm. relationship between governments or or, you know, academics and researchers and the community, this divide, which I think is super false and is absolutely not relevant for 2023 and beyond. Um, we need to be able to come together and co-problem solve. So that is our approach. We started this conversation when you said that there are really inequalities in the world in access to antiretroviral treatment uh, and the way in which people living with HIV have, in general, don't have equal access to the healthcare resources they need. What do you think is um, are some of the uh, additional barriers to progress in that in that regard? So you you've talked about the political and economic aspects of that. Are there other things that we really need to pay attention to in addition to, as you just said, educating and empowering people to make those changes themselves? What else should we be thinking about? Uh, over the next several years to really ensure that, as you said, there's access for all uh, and everybody can benefit from these treatments. Yes, I think you're right. So science is no longer really the big barrier, right? Mm -hmm. I think when we do a root cause analysis, which is really loved by researchers and academics and clinicians, you will end up in a territory that makes you uncomfortable because it's not something you know how to handle. It's not about the molecule anymore. And it's not about a drug side effect. It's not about a diagnostic. It's now about a law. It's now about um, socioeconomic factors. And so I think we need to deal more with the structural issues. And I was in a session this morning around behavioral economics and sort of incentives in the system, which are not always money, and how to change behavior. So I think we need to really remove the biomedical lens mm -hmm. in order to address some of these more structural barriers that we have you know, the human rights framework and being able to deal with those barriers. We, we pay less attention to them because they're difficult. They're harder and they, they, they deal with political issues, economic issues, and those are deeply entrenched, you know, racist systems, mm. which are difficult to change and there are no incentives to change it. So that is where we land up. You know, when you think even like distance to get your medicine like sometimes they, they show up as adherence barriers mm -hmm. or they show up but that's at the symptom level if you dig deeper and which is which is really some of the data that comes from community-led monitoring you will see why why is it that we can't come or why is it that we <laughs> yeah why aren't the clinics located where people living with <laughs> hiv live exactly. right that's those are, are critically important points and i 
You know, I think this has been such an interesting conversation, Solange, because you've really widened the lens on how we have to think about the issues in, in continuing to make progress against HIV globally, and that it's not, as you said, not just a biomedical question, that there are all these other dimensions. You know, another way of putting it is that because HIV affects people's lives in, in toto, uh, we have to have solutions and perspectives that really deal with all aspects of the lives of people who are addressed, you know, who are living with this condition or at risk of, of acquiring HIV infection, uh, or we're never going to uh, make the progress against the epidemic that we would like to. So we could continue for hours. These are important questions. I hope we'll have a chance to come back maybe at the next International AIDS Conference and see what progress we've made. But I wanted to thank you for a really fascinating and candid conversation about some very important issues. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to AIDS Existential Moment. To learn more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page. <laughs>